3: Welcome to the New Books in South Asia Studies a channel on the New Books network I am Lakshita Malik and I'm co-hosting this interview with Neharika Yadav We are joined by Professor Shalaja Payak Taft distinguished professor of history faculty affiliate women's and gender and sexuality studies and asian studies at the University of Cincinnati We are in conversation about her book The Vulgarity of Caste Dalits Sexuality and Humanity in Modern India published by Stanford University Press in 2022. Welcome, Professor Payek. Thank you very much. All right. Uh, Niharka, you do want to open and start with the first question? Absolutely. Uh, thank you both. Uh,
1: I want to start, Professor Paek, by asking you about broadly about the idea for the book. Uh, so my question is about the journey from your first book, Dalit Women's Education in Modern India, Double Discrimination, which came out in 2014. To this one. Uh, in Dalit women's education, you chart a first-of-its-kind social and cultural history of education in modern Maharashtra that centers Dalit women's experiences. And one can see the seeds of your current project in the story you track in your first book, both in terms of studying uh, what you call the contingent and circumscribed agencies through which Dalit women imagine new futures for self and community, but also methodologically in terms of the ethnographic mode of history that you adopt for analyzing some of the archival and political silences, structuring experiences of Dalit women. So, can you tell our listeners how the plan for this book emerged uh, out of the first one and how you got interested in writing a history of Tamasha and of women
2: performers in particular? Certainly. Before I delve into that, I want to thank Lakshita and Niharika for doing the podcast. And I am very thrilled to talk about uh, the book on this podcast. I think you're doing an amazing work. So I I watched uh, Tamasha and other popular um, forms of theater along with films. And As a child, I was very excited about these arts and also enacted uh, the song and the dance performed uh, by women. It was mainly during my field research you know, from 2000 to th- 2004 for my first book, uh, as Niharika mentioned, the, the it was the Dalit women's education in modern India, Double Discrimination. It was published in 2014 by Rutledge when I interacted with uh, Tamasha women. Of course, for this book, I interviewed Dalit women from a range of backgrounds. Rural, urban slums, uh, from middle-class uh, uh, households, lit, you know those who are literate and even the non-literate. And I came across Tamasha dancers uh, who mentioned that they could not attend school mostly because they were constantly on the move. And so, you know, uh, this is all. I mean, as I said, you know, as a child, I've always uh, participated in these performances, but. N- as a researcher, I wanted to understand, you know, the social and, and the, the political and the ideological constraints and forces that actually rooted uh, Tamasha in a caste in in caste patriarchal violence. And mainstream scholars scholars have neglected Tamasha. And except for one article by an eminent sociologist, Sharmila Regge, there is no systematic analysis of the social life of Tamasha. And that is what I wanted to analyze. So Tamasha, which is a popular form of public theater, uh, practiced predominantly by Dalits and is considered a Dalit traditional art, I, I wanted to understand as to you know why the theater and you know this uh, this kind of performance and especially women in there were often branded ashleel that is vulgar and bibhatsa that is disgusting by the larger society. And so, of course, this is you know per the morally driven modern ethic of the pre-colonial, colonial, and the post-colonial state, the elites as well as you know. Uh, and some ordinary people participating in this and so you know bringing my work you know on dalit women and you know now taking it to you know, so those were respectable dalit women that were needed for the uh, dalit movement and the liberation of dalits i moved to the so-called non-respectable or dishonorable uh, dalit women and of course i repeat the so-called so so these uh, dishonor and disrespect in quotes so I'm questioning these categories so to in to understand them um, I I constructed and you know conceptualized this concept of the sex, gender, of sex, gender, caste, which is you know, the, uh, to understand the structural complexities of sexual and gendered arrangements of the caste system as they have operated to oppress Dalit Tamasha women. And to investigate these entangled histories, I developed the sex, gender, caste complex and also the ashleel Manuski asli complex as they were embodied by these women who the larger society thinks you know, uh, are uh, are are embodying some kind of sexual excess. So I analyze the conjugated oppression of vulgarity, sex, sexua- uh, uh, sexuality, caste, class, gender, and popular culture, and illuminate how this came about in the 20th century and how different actors, you know, such as the British high caste elites, Maharashtra state, and Dalits, engage with rowdy and this carnivalesque tamasha for their own purposes.
3: Yeah, thank you so much for for that uh, answer, Professor Payak, and and, and we'll be getting into a lot of the things that you mentioned uh, a little bit later in the interview. For now, I wanted to ask you um, a question around uh, the region, right? So a key site through which you engage with the questions of caste identity, and culture is not the nation which a lot of researchers and and theorists default to, but the region. Um, In this case, it's Maharashtra. In your book, you trace the history of the region by centering uh, performing arts like Tamasha and Lavani. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about how the region became so important in in your work and and especially in the histories of complex caste violence? And I'm thinking here uh, of the projects of like Marathi Karan and and, and that, that carry the brahminical and colonial legacies of, of caste exploitation?
2: Yeah, definitely. So in my work, I mean, both, you know, uh, my first book and my second book, the region actually provides an in-depth analysis of the conjugated oppressions of caste, gender and sexuality at the local level. So the region in this case, Maharashtra, is an important site for the study of the functioning of the feudal caste patriarchal system. Both, you know, it shows us the fluidity as well as the tightening during certain historical periods. So Brahmanism was a powerful ideology, although it was simultaneously accompanied by a critique and anti-caste thought. In the 18th century, the Brahman Peshwa and the and the Brahman state bureaucracy preserved and tightened the caste system. They strictly upheld uh, the Brahman state order and created, at least ideologically, uh, a Brahmanical Hindu kingdom. The ethic of the the ethic of the elites it, it, it sharpened, you know, a similar Brahmanism during colonial times, and especially since the end. Of the 19th century, in order to preserve the spiritual core of modern Maharashtra. After independence, this process of legitimization sharpened even further, and so this is the story I track uh, in the book. I, you know, show as to how this the region it actually provides a microcosm of the casted, gendered, sexual practices and a deeper access to social life which is spread in the in, in the bylines and the local libraries and it can be extended uh, to the national level. So as such, you know, we see that the post-independence project of Marathi Karan was a dialogic... It was in a dialogical relationship with pan-Indian politics. It was tied... Uh, to the making of the modern Indian nation, you know, on common grounds of, for example, script or linguistic heritage, artistry, as regional imagination emerged alongside the national?
3: Right. Uh, yeah, I, I, that, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for, for answering that question, Professor Payak. And this immediately leads me into, obviously, the biggest sort of uh, a concept in this book one of the key concepts in this book which is the sex gender caste complex and i'm particularly interested um in the methodological practices of your book you draw on a wide range of uh regional and archival records um Peshwa patronage records, various colonial records, as well as ethnographic uh, modes of inquiry, analysis of visual performing cultures. There's a lot that, that went into uh, this book as far as methodology is concerned, a wide array of methodological um, uh, uh, sites that you draw from. Could you talk to us about the Pachi Tamasha archive uh, through which you flesh out the contours of this sex-gender caste complex? Yeah, definitely.
2: So, you know, when I started on this project, even I was quite uh, nervous about, you know, uh, the archives. I mean, I certainly know there's a lot of secondary uh, literature uh, on on Tamasha. But at the same time, you know, there are, I mean, as I I mentioned earlier, I also grew up watching uh, these Marathi films, especially, you know, Tamasha-based films. So certainly, you know, uh, there is, uh, there are, there are a lot of different kinds of archives, right? And so this is where, you know, I wanted to, and this is, you know, again, going back to my first book, how I have weaved together these different sites of knowledge. So uh, in this in this book also, I combine ethnographic fieldwork with, a, you know, oral histories and with a close reading of a variety of Marathi archival materials, like, you know, memoirs, biographies, Autobiographies, poems, proverbs, films, documentaries, newspapers, magazines, and books, and this is uh, you know the patchy archive, which is very multi-layered, which is also very fragmented, and there are contested narratives uh, that emerge about Tamasha and Tamasha women. The uh, this patchy archive also Im- illuminated uh, the differences in you know touchables and untouchables readings. Of the for example, you know, as the first chapter shows, touchables and untouchables had contrasting views of Paula Bai, the modern, the first modern Dalit woman you know, dancer and singer. So, you know, I point out to these problems uh, of you know lack of documentation, especially uh, because of the stickiness of ashleel or the vulgar two figures like Bai, despite of her being an absolutely, you know, famous star. So we, uh, we clearly see that, you know, like in other communities, uh, inside and outside of Maharashtra, the Dalit community also engaged, you know, um, in a vibrant print and public culture. And they con- contested the existing idioms, codes and practices of caste, gender, religion and sexuality and they created their own new versions to, to supplant them. And Marathi newspapers published by dominant castes also you know, do not have even fragments of the news I refer to in my book. And of course, you know, the English newspapers and literature also produced by dominant castes and mostly sovereigns were rarely interested in Dalits' uh, you know, ideas and what other Dalits thought about caste untouchability identity gender or sexuality so they they are all neglected uh, the dalit surplus woman. and you know socially mobile anxious dalits also did not want to mention uh, these women in their newspapers or associate themselves with any sort of ashleel or women of ill repute as they would say So that is why the Tamasha archive is very patchy and inconsistent. And I had had to recreate the muted voices and the suppressed subjectivities of Tamasha women through writings of men. And, you know, and of course, most significantly through oral histories. So, so for example, to give you you an example, chapter one, which, you know, where I have Recreated the history of, and that this is the first history of Paurabai, and you know, we we come across merely sentences, you know, in in in, Mara, in the biography of Bapurao. So, you know, and and these sentences also you know create a lot, cause a lot of violence uh, to the entity of Paurabai, and that is that. Is the kind of woman that emerges, but at the same time, you know, juxtaposing the memoir and the biography and some secondary sources, you know, I have tried to weave together uh, uh, Paubha's life story. So um, I'm uh, I'm very happy that I was able to do so by putting these pieces together, you know, in working with this patchy uh, archive. Yeah, so it was challenging and at the same time, very exciting.
1: Yeah, my, uh, my next question actually follows on that. So this is a, a great segue because you come up with uh, two ways to describe the methodology that you adopt to negotiate this patchy archive. One is, of course, the vernacular as method, which you talk about, uh, which is, you know, both reading these unexplored archives in Marathi, but also using vernacular concepts and political languages and particularly particularly the concepts of um, Asli Maruski. And and then you also say, uh, in one place, uh, you also use the other kind of reading on this patchy archive, you say connected histories. So here I was really, really, really taken in by your suggestion about the need to write connected histories of Dalits and dominant castes to study what you call the interlocking technologies through which the sex, gender, caste, complex works to structure all kinds of hierarchies, um, and that shape our experiences, uh, not just of caste, but of class and gender. So in this regard, um, as you mentioned, the second chapter presents a kind of exemplary connected history in which you show how very different resources are available to two Tamasha performers, you know, Bapura, who's Brahmin, male, and Paula Bai, who's a female Dalit. And you uh, the connected history that you show is uh, is is absolutely stunning in how you are able to then show that the very resources that Pavla Bai uses to transform her performance into what you call quote her Dalitness and artistry artistry into possibility uh, was constrained by the same social power and capital that Bapura was able to use to kind of boldly denounce his caste and caste privilege. So you show how the stickiness uh, and and this is also a concept i'd love for you to elaborate on of the charge of ashleel or vulgar uh, is made to kind of stick to pamla bai's uh, performance and this is very directly linked to the resources that baburao can use to claim authentic marathi cultural identity so can you share some more reflections on this idea of connected histories because i see many possibilities uh, of of this uh, concept for writing kind of anti-caste histories of South Asia?
2: Yes, certainly. Yeah. So so this is uh, one of my most important uh, contributions. So we have works, uh, you know, by scholars who have either focused on, you know, just like, for example, they're focused only on the Brahmins or they're focused on Dalits or, you know, they're focused on Rajputs or so on. But, we haven't really talked about the connections between these different communities so that is what i have you know tried to show that we need to look at you know people who are located in these different social locations and how they are actually interacting with each other and you know drawing upon each other's expertise for example here we see Bapurao doing that with you know Paurabai and Mahars and monks he comes across and how he is able to really you know he is able to appropriate uh, their arts and their cultures and at the same time you know there's a it does, you know, reveal some possibilities of an anti-caste critique. But at the same time, there are limitations, right? So there are all these different um, lines that uh, we come across. And at the same time, you know, connections uh, between people and how they came together uh, in certain historical conjunctures to shape uh, certain politics, Right here, you know, yes, an uh, 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 anti-caste critique to an extent, but at the same time, it also shows uh, the fissures and the predicaments and, you know, the problems uh, that erupted because of their um, the lack or the limitations to their thinking as well as practice. So that was one important line of thought uh, that I have pursued. And the second one is showing how the stickiness of caste and the ashleel, the way it attaches not to a task or even the art primarily, but to the body of the person that performs it. And thus, you know, forecloses economic opportunities for some people beyond uh, Tamasha. So here... Uh, stickiness you know um, I draw upon Ambedkar who of course himself did not use the word ashleel but he did capture the essence of the ashleel sticking to the untouchable when he referred to what he called protective discoloration that cannot be peeled off and that prevents the realization of an authentic selfhood. So stickiness here is the outcome of repeated impressions. It is an effect that emerges from these histories of contact. So as we say, for example, you know, between Paolabai and Bapura in the first chapter, or for example, um, you know, in the film chapter. So we, we see as to how it emerges in this contact, uh, contact between the elites and Tamasha uh, actors. So we see that you know in this uh, stickiness actually emerges from these cultural and personal exchanges, and also those exchanges repeat meaning and resonance, and you know it results in what uh, what the anthropologist Sarah Ahmed has called an accumulation of affective value, and that is stickiness. So I show that the stickiness attached to Dalit tamasha i mean the performance as a whole as well as you know moments to uh, and the performance as well as uh, at moments to the dalit community as a whole so for example when all dalits are while all dalits are considered polluted some uh, like tamasha women they were considered more polluting uh, more restless than others so even inside the dalit community we come across you know these these uh, uh, different layers and as a result, uh, we see that to radical Dalits, this Ashlil actually disrupted their march to modernity and Manuski. Because the Ashlil in every minute form, it prevented Dalits from becoming fully human. And so this is the stickiness of vulgarity and caste pollution. And so I show how vulgarity and caste pollution colluded. So this stickiness of caste for Brahmins would be, you know, Accumulation of their privilege and power, and that would make an even stronger Brahman personhood. But the same stickiness of caste, you know, sticking, accumulating over time, it cannot be easily altered when it stuck to Dalits. It compounded Dalit subalternity, stigmatizing and subjecting them even further. So we see that, you know, for example, in the case of Bapu Rao, he muffled untouchables' voices and silenced them as soon as they produced lavna he appropriated appropriated their lavna and he even imprinted his signature you know on his lavni so even though he sang a lavni which was supposed to be you know ashleel vulgar bapura this brahman man does not become vulgar right and like the untouchables so this is the stickiness of vulgarity it's stuck to the untouchables and left touchables like bapura free
3: Right. Thank you so much for that. And and, and stickiness, as we learn throughout your book, is such an important concept, which allows me to then segue into uh, this concept of manuski. Um, so you provide such a nuanced critique of, of, and this is again related to questions of Dalit masculinity, which... Uh, Simply are understood in the literature as replicating problems of Brahminical heteropatriarchy. And you very much contend that and, and you very much critique that. In fact, you engage with Mbedkar's complex understanding of Manuski denied to Dalits under Brahminical power regimes and how it was meant to be extended to Dalit men and women equally, not just men, right? So not only does Manuski then differ from liberal human rights discourses, but is also not the same as dominant caste, uh, middle class, respectability politics. Um, so Manuski, which is humanity, right? That's not the same as either of these things. This is particularly evident in how you understand Jalsa and its relationship to uh, Tamasha and Lavanya, What again? Uh, which again also brings together this question of stickiness, vulgarity, and what one must do to, quote-unquote, escape it. Um, Could you please get into some of these uh, complicated understandings of manuski and Balit masculinity?
2: Yeah, certainly. I mean, and so I've been, you know, as I said, uh, this is uh, the first work that has uh, really unearthed these concepts in the vernacular Marathi for us, and it has been, you know, an absolutely fantastic um, experience, you know, working with these uh, con- with these hitherto neglected uh, concepts and you know ideologies and intellectual contributions of Dalits. So here, you know, uh, uh, we see that, of course, you know, as we know through different histories uh, of different regions in India, Dalits struggle to uh, recuperate. Their humanity, and dignity, which is that is Manuski in Marathi, as and this is the word that is used that is used by Ambedkar. So uh, they they wanted to recuperate their Manuski and lift themselves up, raising their moral status in the eyes of the dominant castes and the colonial government to assert their Asli status. So, although on the exterior uh, some passed as touchables, Dalits could not easily escape the stickiness of caste or separate it from their lower status to become casteless, And so therefore they've always already, you know, Ashlil, uh, unlike the modern touchables. Although Savarna women were performing in Tamasha and Lavani programs or Tamashe in, in films, this it was very a, temp, a tentative monetary arrangement for them. They were not stigmatized like hereditary Dalit Tamasha women. So, you know, um, Savarna women could ride their scooters to the theater, dance and sing, and, you know, after the show, they could very uh, easily return to their respectable homes as normal, modest, and models, uh, modern women. However, you know, the abject Dalit Tamasha woman was excluded. From such fame, and they did not enjoy this privilege and luxury. They were afflicted by poverty and the stickiness of vulgarity and stigma of caste. So that is, you know, uh, how I see how Manuski, you know, actually was a a concept that Ambedkar, you know, um, worked through and how it eluded, it excluded. Uh, Dalits and especially the Dalit uh, tamasha woman. Uh, however, when we look at um, when you know when we think about the intersections of popular practices, which are you know they, certainly caste patriarchal based cultural forms such as tamasha and sexual labour, gender, human and Dalitness. Again, there is you know scholars have you know paid little attention, and when when they have brought when they have thought about gender and dalitness in the same analytical framework their analysis also tends to flatten or misinterpret certain gendered processes vis-a-vis dalitness and humanity so they also do not the, these scholars also do not provide any specific contents and contours of what it actually means uh, what, like what what is meant by dalit masculinity as such and its historical transitions in the early 20th century. So this is where, you know, yes, on the first glance, it may seem that you know, Ambedkar is also trying you know, using his patriarchal power to uh, domesticate uh, the surplus Tamasha woman. However, I think, you know, this requires a deeper thought and a deeper analysis as to what it actually meant. So for example, you know, like, for example, some scholars have, have uh, they, they tend to think that Dalit masculinity is a merely mimicry of dominant norms of manhood. And on the other, it, uh, it like produces, uh, this re- actually reproduces a one dimensional view of, you know, quote unquote, suffering, battered and thrashed Dalit women at the hands of Dalit men. So this is where I think, you know, this is a very simplistic uh, reading. And so I show that my book shows that patriarchy is first, first of all, a hierarchical relationship among men. And in this case, especially the British and touchable men. So, you know, we know as to how the British characterize, colonize Indian men as inherently inferior, but also differentiated among them through a hierarchy of manliness and masculinity. So patriarchy is always operate in a relational manner and they are subjected to a wider political economy. So elite feminists have easily, they easily elite how masculinities are produced differently at different complex intersections of class, family, gender, community, and nation. And in fact, it is Dalit's subordinate and, you know, so-called uncivilized masculinity that rendered them not male, that rendered them irrelevant, threatening, and dangerous to touchables. So it is these tenuous processes that make Dalit men more vulnerable to disciplining and sanitization. So we need to, uh, you know, understand how, like, for example, as to how, you know, current historiography largely fails to recognize how certain gender political strategies such as you know for example constructing warrior genealogies and military pasts or entering the army or a founding of the samata sainik dal in 1927 and attempts to eradicate supposedly ashleel women from dalit samaj were attempts not uh, first and foremost to conform to or reproduce or challenge colonial or brahmani gender norms but they were to generate a unique Dalit manus and manuski in the context of sex, gender, caste discourses about docile, dirty, childlike, deficient, or effeminate Dalit men and hypersexualized Dalit women. So Ambedkar very often intentionally invoked Dalit masculinity as a facet of Manuski to challenge Dalit men and women to defend their rights and liberties and sustain their autonomy and independence. So, you know, th- therefore, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, uh, scholars, and it's, it's no surprise uh, that, you know, Dalit response entailed Manuski. But here again, we need to understand that Manuski and masculinity are, are are hedged, and, and most importantly, we need to understand the transformative potential of this modern politics of Manuski. And so perhaps, you know, we see with Ambedkar and even like what the Jalsakars were trying to do, the marginalization of women was necessary to this making of Dalit Manuski, a new dignified humanity. And perhaps this exclusion of women from Tamasha and Jalsa was necessary to secure societal recognition of Dalit Manuski, because there was no non-patriarchal, gender egalitarian model of Manuski available. So these were intensely troubled, uh, you know, processes. But we need to also understand that you no, know, this is not uh, just a completely patriarchal move. There is something uh, that is at stake, which is. Humanity and dignity for Dalits. So, how do you work through these different pressures? So that is what I'm trying to do in my in the book.
3: Right. No, that was uh, great. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, unpack that with us over here. And that, and that is really in the essence of the book. And and I uh, and so my next question is to. Uh, talk through things about, like, invisible labor and specifically the vulnerability to everyday and and more structural, not that they are mutually exclusive forms of violence that Dalit women have to experience. And I ask this in the light of, like, uh, it's an academic interest now uh, in understanding pleasure and and maza and joy and whatnot. Uh, but you really... Um, braid those questions and in fact pose a question to what pleasure looks like for different kinds of bodies and how that may be just braided in structurally with, with instances of violence and, and not just instances uh, just an entire structure of violence and, and exploitation so could you talk to us about
0: that this episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party, or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe, every day, at sax.com.
2: Yeah, definitely, and here, you know, there's, as you said, you know, maza, and in the other word that I come across is nakra, so... <laughs> <laughs> so i know how yes uh, scholars and you know uh, uh, lay people talking about oh the woman is you know doing a lot of nakra like, you know every um, people seem to be just oblivious to you know how uh, these uh, this pleasure is rooted in the vi- in, in caste violence and you know they seem they just invisibilize the work of these relationships of power and caste and economics. So, for example, you know, Tamasha is actually rooted um, in two Marathi words, you know, it was referred to as khir, it is play, and, you know, gammat, which is fun, you know, humor. And colloquially, the word has come to mean, you know, fun, nonsense, a tantrum, or even disorder and commotion. So, Tamasha is this, you know... Uh, um, this nexus uh, and this, this is the nexus of play and work that I'm interested in and this is how Tamasha is conveniently naturalized and normalized. So that is what uh, I have challenged and uh, many, Tamasha, many Tamasha people also agreed that Tamasha was Kala which is art or, or Lakshmi you know goddess of wealth And of course, you know, their means of livelihood and some underlined, you know, exhaustive training and rehearsals. Tamasha was also, uh, it also expected Tamasha women to play rather than work, right? So in this process, we clearly see that this kala or khair invisibilized the work and relationships of power and caste and the political economy in Tamasha. So as such, you know the form and uh, the actors, they reduced Dalits to singing and playing music and dancing and you know until the current day. And Tamasha women worked on this reiterative body politics of erotic excess, for example, emphasizing bold bodily gestures that is winking the left eye or accentuating the and deploying, Certain body parts, you know, uh, openly expressing uh, expressing sensuality, and you know, for and expressing lovemaking or sexual enjoyment for their predominantly touchable male audience, and we clearly see that in this process, work is um, and in this practice, work is looked upon as productive, and play is its opposite. It's its antithesis, its, its play is looked upon as unproductive. So different touchables and untouchables, they harness you know, uh, Tamasha for doing some work for by putting the unproductive to productive use. And of course, women did the most important work that was rendered play because of the presumably unruly energies, aimless and simple enjoyments uh, that Tamasha provided so as play in the sense of drama or even play between the artist and the audience tamasha lacked utility and the play and playfulness of tamasha has mass appeal and touchables and untouchables they also deployed it for their you know their own gains so by sanitizing tamasha touchable elites put the resistance and rebellious energy of tamasha to the work of carving asli identity thus the quote-unquote play of tamasha, you know, uh, successfully occludes work in the sense that the always already sexually alienated labor of the Dalit tamasha woman performer it produces the surplus that keeps the sexual caste economy in place, and we clearly see this, you know, in different chapters, especially uh, chapter one, and tamasha and its practitioners they you know, also paradigmatically represented the excess, the waste of the world. So as such, you know there's always this violence uh, at play with regard to Dalit culture, artistry, and creativity in this fun-filled Tamasha. And although you know, all our, our touchable men enjoyed Tamasha and Tamasha women, they also devalued the work of Tamasha women and rendered them unproductive and surplus. So on the one hand, there's this management of surplus through a set of, you know, through like through a set of iterative practices of negative control. And in the other, there's a marking of surplus as negative and corrosive and yet necessary in order to assert this asli caste selfhood of sovereignness. So the fun and play, Tamasha was, you know, color, calm, and the performance of sensual play for Tamasha women. And relaxation, amusement, entertainment, and opportunity to feel like a real man, quote unquote, real man, uh, for the touchable men in the audience. So, Tamasha were women, you know, which was supposed to be their play, there, but they're actually working, enabling men to laugh, to joke, made, make lewd comments, or pat each other on the back, and flirt, and dance, and drink. And men structured their manliness and masculine behaviors mainly with, you know, this Tamasha woman who excited and stimulated them. So the everyday work and sustenance of Tamasha women depended on their complying, challenging, negotiating, bending, and transgressing of traditional patriarchy through an excessive performance of the erotic and the exotic. So there was this double system of work and play in Tamasha. Work was concealed behind play, and most important, the meaning of play was fashioned to accommodate that of work. And yet the work of Tamasha woman and these, you know, the different Tamasha women I interviewed and, you know, who are portrayed in the book was depicted as non-work, especially in the culture of India that values hard work. And as a result, time pass, as we call it, has a negative connotation
1: yeah thank you so much i mean actually you uh, in this uh, kind of in the, in investigating this paradox uh, that the performance and performativity of tamasha enables you tell another very very important connected history right like the appropriation the devaluing but then appropriation of tamasha to produce especially in post-colonial Maharashtra, to produce Marathi cultural identity, but the very constrained, uh, constrained and circumscribed kind of agency that that allows to the Tamasha women performers themselves in order to construct uh, selfhood. Uh, and you describe this selfhood as self in community. And I want to return to this uh, question of the Samaj uh, and your, and how you broadly sketch the... Uh, this very complex, what you call uh, ambivalent agency of Tamasha women and its its relationship to the Dalit Samaj that Ambedkar Ambedkar's Manuski uh, configures. And so my question is really about how, uh, and I'm interested in this question because in a way, uh, the modern concept of society as we know it is incommensurable with these uh, kind of disjunctive hierarchies of an order based in caste. And you show how the Dalit Samaj actually offers a very particular figuration of the social, not Composed of abstract or equal individuals, but as you show, of a self in community. So I was ho- wondering if you could elaborate for our listeners how Tamasha women figure in this self in community and how their relationship to the Dalit social engenders some new meanings of community or of samaj. And in particular, uh, you know, it comes towards the end as you as you talk about your interview with Manglatai, uh, This complex negotiation that uh, tamasha, Dalit Tamasha performers have with uh, the figure of the, quote, prostitute woman in, in uh, thinking of their own uh, agency, their own uh, negotiations with uh, very constrained, uh, but opening up possibilities for respectability, agency, selfhood in community. So that's a long-winded question, but I hope you can elaborate on this Uh, Kind of relationship of the of the Dalit women performers to uh, samaj,
2: yeah. Yeah, sure. Yes. So uh, the concept of samaj and the self and community, uh, as I call it, is also very very central because we clearly see that Ambedkar is, uh, you know, he's he's trying to uh, build Uh, you know, community, however fuzzy it might be, but at the same time, you know, is very successful in bringing together uh, the Samaj in order to, you know, in order to fight for personhood, you know, uh, this dignity and humanity, uh, Manuski, that was denied to Dalits. So bringing together you know these uh, disparate threads you know this uh, but but trying to bring together this collectivity of dalits and again here i want to emphasize that yes there were a lot of contradictions amongst dalits themselves as to you know, how they would how they wanted to you know view and in you know, what imag- what liberation looked like for them but at the same time all agreed and were committed to the cultivation of for example you know Manusky, which was important to protect basic civic and human rights and cultivate untouchables worthiness to gain citizenship freedom and equality so the, the problem Ambedkar faced was not of responding to characterizations of Dalit men as effeminate and Dalit women as ashleel, but of this tenuous process of reforming, maintaining manuski, carving out a positive manus and becoming, you know, quote unquote, civilized and quote unquote, cultured and adopting certain respectable moral standards in order to be accepted by the larger Indian society. And here, yes, you know, uh, even some responses such as, for example, founding of the Samta Sainik Dal entailed a performance of a hegemonic hegemonic masculine norm or the caste or the sex gender caste complex. It also unequally burdened Dalit women with accusations of immorality and vulgarity, and thus. This new Dalit woman, she was burdened with these, uh, you know, pressures and consequences of the reform of the Dalit Samaj. And, you know, caste assumptions led that led to hierarchies of purity and pollution, superiority and inferiority, decency and degradation, highness and lowness, and, you know, an order and danger. They created devastation on both sides of the caste divide. And produced a less generous society and excluded untouchables from the commonweal. So Dalit women's sentiments, attachments, and commitment emphasize that these projects of building a samaj or even uh, the projects of, of Dalit feminism uh, in a doubly colonial Brahmini and British colonial context and the articulation of gender and sexuality as well as, you know, the Dalit revolution are never predetermined. So there is no just one way of bringing together uh, the Dalit Samaj. And, you know, uh, or just one way of thinking about, for example, the project of Dalit feminism or Dalit humanism, they are to be negotiated according to historical moments, as well as caste, race, class positions. And, you know, thinking about, you know, how Mangaltai or Tamasha women, you know, what, how they were negotiating and interacting with this Samaj. I mean, clearly we see that uh, Dalit men, including, you know, Ambedkar and the Jalsakars that we come across in the book are intensely troubled by the exploitation of women like Paurabai in the theater of Tamasha. And this, that, and because they sought to recuperate a certain humanity, you know, a certain swabhiman or self-respect, and Manuske for all Dalits, and remaking of the honor of the most degraded woman was critical to Dalit self in the community in uh, a doubly colonial context. So yes, uh, you know, certainly uh, uh, there are tensions, but. Uh, we and we also see as to how, for example, women like Mangaltai, you know, continue to negotiate with the Dalit and the non Dalit Samaj, you know, so who are dealing with a double patriarchy both inside and outside, and they have to make certain critical decisions when they are trying to, you know, do this. So, for example, this, you know, one is yes they understand that you know their the that their relationship to with the dalit social is very fraught and uh, at the same time they are also provided you know some opportunities of self making there is some um, resistance that is tolerated but again you know only if they Act within particular boundaries. However, in the twentieth cent, you know, and from the end of the twentieth century, and especially in the twenty first century, we also clearly see as to how Dalit women have pushed, you know, these boundaries of the Dalit samaj, carving out, you know, their own. Status, financial, and social, and as I have mentioned, uh, and as Niharika pointed out, uh, you know, in the in, in the conclusion of the book, I show as to how they have formed an acquisitive, responsible, and self interested ethic through which they could remake themselves and their families, and just you know show as to you know how they were embraced uh, by the samaj and but at the same time again in you know, a very very fraught they are embraced and at the same time you know uh, they are also you know, they could be depicted as uh, as uh, vulgar uh, women so these are the these are the contradictions and pressures and the tenuous moments that we come across so on the one hand certainly the dalit samaj offers this you know, very concrete uh, instances of building self in the community, despite of hierarchies and dif- despite of you know differences in ideologies. And at the same time, there are also these um, moments when things may collapse or may or things may be taken to newer, uh, higher, you know, grounds where. Where women are pushing uh, these boundaries.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. And you show this so beautifully in the text. I am really um, stopping myself from going into lengthy quotations where you where you kind of sketch this what you call an ambivalent agency so wonderfully. And you show how rather than you know rather than being about kind of claim to certain kinds of a. Ad- stable identity it's really about opening possibilities and oriented towards the future and again i'm holding myself back from quoting but uh, but to in the you know looking towards the future and in that sense you know opening up possibilities i wanted to talk about some sources or some of the critical conversations that your work participates in so of course you uh, engage with ambedkar and the writing of an activism of dalits you also talk about you also kind of uh, uh, bring or engage with feminist anti caste critics like Sharmila Rege Kalomwed Vigita in particular but also theorists of race and imperialism you draw especially on Saidia Hartman Sylvia Winter Fanon and so can you tell our listeners a little bit about how you draw um, insights from these different conversations how you connect them and, and and kind of produce in producing your own insights and also Uh, you know, what you think are the contributions of your work uh, in particular, and maybe this complex picture of agency that you sketch
2: uh, to these conversations? Yeah, definitely. So uh, I have really, you know, um, benefited from, and, you know, I have um, drawn upon and built upon, uh, you know, scholars who have worked on, these complicated uh, interlocking technologies, as I call them, of caste, gender, race, sexuality, popular culture. And so that is where, you know, the scholars that um, uh, you come across in the book and as Niharika mentioned, you know, they they have been extremely, you know, critical uh, to my work. So, for example, you know, I see that the book is able to to not only, you know, uh, build on, but also, you know, build a a new foundation for thinking about the conjugated operations of caste, race, gender, and sexuality. So, you know, this is uh, showing us that, you know, my analysis of oppressed subjectivities of Dalit women is not... Constrained to the South Asian uh, Indian context, but it is, it can be, it is applicable to a non-South Asian uh, context, and I have benefited from reading and working with Ambedkar, Sylvia Winter, Saidia Hartman, uh, Fanon, and ashil Mbembe in terms of you know thinking through thinking about the dalit human so it has been a wonderful you know linking and connecting these insights of black scholars with dalit scholars and you know and some non dalit scholars to understand what and how we can think uh, and you know what, what for example ambedkar may be focusing on when he's talking about manuske for dalits so this is where you know i am i am you know um, connecting them and advancing uh, you know their insights to understand this this humanness of dalits and the way they were trying to build humanity and dignity uh, something that has not uh, been done and this is this is how i write which i uh, you know this this is what i you know this is my contribution to this global history of sexuality and gender and social inequality and humanity so the, the key insights that uh, you know uh, that i bring to to the to the table uh, basically of humanity, of understanding you know the sex, gender caste complex, of understanding how certain communities are looked upon as vulgar and you know non-human for that matter. and, and because of the ways social inequality, operates and drawing upon these uh, different theorists in different locations and how they have tried to understand you know humanity has you know um, helped me connect uh, not only these different lives but also sharpen the focus on how people construct uh, their own agency
3: Right. Thank you so much. That was, uh, you sat through so much of this with us. I am really thankful that that you went into so much detail with us. Uh, and of course, it's a wonderful book. Strongly recommend everyone to go out and get a copy and engage with it. It was fabulous. Yeah, I can assure all the listeners that we barely scratched the surface yeah. in terms of the, the
1: the many conceptual insights of this book and you know we've we're actually not even going through all of our questions since we're running out of time but yeah again I want to echo Lakshita that I really encourage everyone to to read the book
3: yeah uh, just one final question uh, about your upcoming projects what can we expect to read from you I for one I'm really excited I'm sure Niharika is too to hear that
2: Definitely, again, you know, I'm uh, very excited to share uh, that I have um, an article coming out and the title of the article is To Kiss or Not to
3: Kiss. Interesting. That sounds great.
2: (laughs) So I'm uh, uh, very excited about that. And again, you know, once again, focusing on... The kissing and you know vulgarity and the regeneration and the remaking of the Maharashtra state, especially in you know the in post colonial times, and I'm also uh, look I'm also editing a book on caste and race in South Asia and in South Asia and beyond, and uh, I am uh, the the cambridge companion to ambedkar is a forthcoming so these are the different projects that i'm working on and uh, uh, lastly uh, i am at the national humanities center uh, this year working on you know so in, going into the in, uh, the politics of the vulgar in the 19th century so this is what uh, i'm occupied with right now thank
1: you so much professor pike we look forward to all of those uh, all of those wonderful
2: projects Well, thank you very much. This was an incredible pleasure, yes. I am very, very thrilled talking about uh, my work with you. Thank you very much for the questions and for the engagement.
3: Thank you so much, Professor Payak. I have interrupted you now twice, so I'm just going to stop recording (laughs) before it gets worse.